discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and let to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. Welcome to the Total Liberation Podcast, everyone. I am your host, Mexi, and today we have on two guests that are absolute fountains of knowledge when it comes to Chinese history on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. If you're interested in learning more, they've done an incredible seven-part series on this very complex history on the Silk and Steel podcast, which I have linked below. But today we're going to cover the recent very belligerent U.S. provocations towards China with respect to Taiwan, but also more broadly the pivot, or should we say re-pivot perhaps, of U.S. foreign policy towards China and what most people are calling the new Cold War. It does start with quite a lot of history because it's just impossible to understand what's going on without broaching this history. Uh, and it's really unbelievable how this stuff gets just simplified down into mainstream talking points, because as you'll see, it's incredibly, like we barely even scratched the surface. As you know, they've done a seven part series on this. So definitely check that out if you're still interested. Um, I personally believe the U.S. has just hollowed itself out so drastically through neoliberalism and is basically just all military industrial complex at this point. And the death rattles of dying empires always create so much global havoc that this new Cold War has the potential to be really quite ugly. And in terms of the propaganda machine, it's already ramped up quite remarkably with a lot of it unsurprisingly relating to U.S. corporations and industries being outcompeted and wanting to reassert dominance and hegemony. So I think this is an important episode. These are certainly some important voices, and I hope you enjoy as much as I did having the conversation. I also wanted to shout out a new podcast I've been listening to on China-Africa relationships. It's called The Crane. And uh, there are two main hosts who are from different countries in Africa, and they also bring on different guests. And it's just really illuminating as to what the economic relationships actually look like, um, both between African nations and the West, uh, and also between them and China. And it really just reasserts the agency of African countries to obviously know from experience and from just looking at the details of each deal, uh, you know, which would be more reflective of their interests. So I'll link that below as well if people are interested. As you know, this is a donor-funded show, so as always, a very, very big thank you to our patrons. If you would like to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash totalliberation. You can join our bi-monthly community political chats on Discord, which are always a great time. Or you can rate and review the podcast, which helps us tremendously, if the ratings are positive. <laughs> uh, and I love reading the reviews, and it's just a very excellent non-monetary way to show support of the show. So thanks again, and on with the episode. 
Hello, I'm Carl Za. Um, I'm a podcaster. Uh, my podcast, the Silk and Steel podcast, primarily focuses on China and surrounding regions, history, culture, and politics. And I, I'm honored to be invited to your show. Of the, I'm, I'm very excited to share this podcast with uh, my fellow uh, guest, one-time guest on my podcast, uh, Zhang Yu. Who uh, we co- I collaborated on a Taiwan history podcast series, uh, a fourteen-hour-long, uh, very comprehensive coverage of Taiwan history from prehistory all the way down to the present. So thanks, guys. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Um. Hey, guys. Um. I'm Xiangyu. I am. Um. How how would I describe myself? A contrarian at this point, <laughs> um, of sorts. But um, I am. I would consider myself to be a um, a Taiwanese anti-imperialist, pro-reunification, I guess, agitator. And I also make music. Yeah, I guess those are the hats I wear. And um, Carl, well, I know. Um, I know we were in the middle of another series. It's just been a very bad year. But at some point. At some point, I'm not saying when. At some point, so it could be in ten years, it could be in twenty years. I will finish that. <laughs> so we we were scheduled to do a Korean War series oh. from a Chinese perspective, uh, but we 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 got we got it started. We had a prequel. Uh, yeah, we we got a prequel. So we're about to start episode zero, one. <laughs> no, 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 we got prequel and episode one. Okay, we got episode one, but uh, episode two is TVA. Depending on Xiang Yu's availability, nice. what was episode one even about? Uh, we we covered kind of the the um the uh the background of the Korean War, just leading up to the actual war. We we cover because a lot of people uh talk about Korean War as something that happened on June nineteen fifty, but but there's there's a whole history a whole context that's missing that's leading up to the war so i think we did a good job covering that uh thank you Xiangyu. it will actually be relevant in today's episode because um some of the yes. questions i was looking at some of the questions like you know like how the u.s has like u.s involvement in the um the cross-strait issues and all that and the korean war actually plays a pivotal moment we're not going to really get into it but it will be mentioned mm-hmm yeah, well, thank you both so much for coming on the show. Um, I absolutely loved your seven-part series. I can't remember how many hours you said it was, but I listened to the whole thing, and it was wow. fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And I would really recommend the Silk and Steel podcast as well for anyone who hasn't checked it out yet. Um, so I really wanted to have you both on the show because uh, the media has been in a real frenzy recently around Taiwan, but also just broader sensationalist propaganda against mainland China in this kind of new Cold War era. Um, you know, the Olympics, I think, were a great example of that. And so I want to get into some of the U.S. provocations uh, in relation to the mainland and uh, Taiwanese you know, relations. But I think it would be good to lay groundwork for that to 
kind of get into a bit of the history that you covered on that series, which I know is a huge question because you already, you know, it's a seven parter. It's, it's there's a lot of information. Um, but I was wondering if you could just uh, go over some of the key points that people need to understand about the history of you know mainland China and Taiwan to really understand why the recent U.S. actions have been so flagrant and belligerent and just you know really acts of warmongering. So I'm not sure exactly where you want to start, but um, yeah, feel free to. <laughs> I'll I'll go first. So sure. uh, what what people don't realize is uh, the the Sino-American interaction actually goes away way back uh, to to the time when the United States was first founded. Um, and it was originally a, primarily a trade relationship because U.S., after its independence from Britain, it was being blocked out of the trade with the British Commonwealth, with the British Empire. And you wanted to trade with China, then one of the largest economy in the world, to make up for that. And uh, U.S. have tried everything. They, they tried to first try to sell Jensen, uh, American Jensen and to uh, first they traded with Native Americans in the Pacific Northwest um, and and uh, and then in the end uh, US merchant found out the best lucrative way of making money is through drugs so they US actually you know a lot of people know about opium war they know opium war was waged by Britain against China for the rights to sell opium to China. But what many people didn't realize is that uh, British control about 85% of the opium trade to China. Other 15% is done by Americans. And it was done by all the new England elite, uh, you know, we, uh, who would became the now the old money, uh, you know, the, the Forbes family, for example, John Kerry's family, um, he, his, uh, his, uh, his ancestor, uh, the the John Forbes they he went to China as a as a young man and returned to U.S. at the tender age of twenty five a multimillionaire from from opium smuggling and so is uh, the grandfather of FDR FDR's uh, grandfather Warren Delano made his fortune again uh, smuggling opium into China so so U.S. has a long commercial interest uh, to say the least. We, in East Asia and particularly with China. And then uh, because British, after the Opium War, the Br Britain uh, gained, uh, forced China to open uh, a series of treaty ports to, for trade, uh, which the treaty ports were the Britain gained rights as an extraterritoriality, which means if a British citizen commits a crime on Chinese soil, they will not be prosecuted under Chinese law. They will only be prosecuted under English law by English judges. So U.S. uses opportunity by selling its own warship into Canton, Guangzhou today, and demanded the same treatment um, as the British. And the, and the Qing government at the time was so afraid of the, the Western power at that point, it just agreed to everything. Um, and so, so U.S. kind of wrote the coattail of the British Empire in China. And then uh, because 
British got there first. The U.S. was a relative latecomer, as imperialist power in East Asia. U.S. decided to explore other venues, and and that that led to Commodore Perry sending his black ships to force Japan to open its uh, ports to trade. But in this process, around the 1850s. As Commodore Perry was sailing the water between China and Japan, he made a stop by Taiwan, and at this time, Taiwan is order, already under Chinese administration as a prefecture under、uh, Fujian Province. Commodore Perry made a recommendation to the U.S. government in the 1850s that he said Taiwan is perfectly strategically located between mainland China, Japan. Okinawa, and it's advantageous to United States to occupy Taiwan, and so we can put a coaling station there for the U.S. Navy. And、uh, what we then what happened was after Commodore Perry forced Japan to open up,、uh, the U.S. Civil War happened. So U.S. became distracted with its own, its own internal struggles for a few years. Uh, and so, so that his Commodore Perry's proposal for occupying Taiwan didn't go anywhere, and but U.S. will be back after the end of the、uh, end of the Civil War, and as we know, U.S.、Uh, enter its own foray、uh, to try to be an imperialist power with the、uh, Spanish-American War by grabbing the Spanish colonies, not. Only in the Caribbean, which is Cuba and Puerto Rico, but also the Philippines, and and U.S. was very open about why he wants Philippines because as a stepping stone to China, and U.S. was still,、uh, you know, between the time U.S. occupied Philippines and and the the first Commodore Perry mission to East Asia, U.S. got itself into an invasion of Taiwan in the 1870s. And this this was、um, one of the U.S. ships that was、uh, the, the the shipping quote unquote merchandise along the Chinese coast, you know, also involving opium trade,、uh, was shipping shipping its goods from the southern、uh, um, Chinese port of Santo to to Manchuria. But on the way, it caught a storm and it shipwrecked off Taiwan, and. At the time, you know, the、uh, much of the eastern Taiwan is still populated by、uh, various indigenous、uh, tribes, and、uh, the indigenous people they didn't take very take kindly to the tra- trespassers, so they killed the crew, and、um, and then the U.S. government got involved because the U.S. consul on Xiamen、uh, across the Taiwan Strait, he took upon himself to. Uh, you know, on a, a civilizing mission to bring "quote unquote" civilization to Taiwan, and he forced the Qi- first he、um, <coughs> uh, forced the Qing government to apologize and to pay compensation. But the Qing government, the bureaucrats at the time, they just don't want trouble, so they claim, "Oh, these."、Uh, These savages, we we have no control over. We have no jurisdiction over them, and uh, but uh, that was an excuse that you, United States needed. So they thought, okay, well, if China doesn't have jurisdiction over these indigenous people on Taiwan, we're going to take matter into our own hands. So they send, they actually send a U.S. warship, landed Marines in Taiwan, 
And they got themselves defeated by the indigenous people on Taiwan. This is the first U.S. war uh, military adventure in Taiwan, and and U.S. was soundly defeated. Um, <laughs> and the the U.S. consul then went back to the Qing government. They arm twisted the 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 local viceroy. He said, "Okay, if you don't do anything." Then U.S. is going to send troops to China. So they, the the Qin viceroy, then give him gave him a battalion of Chinese troops, which he led to Taiwan to uh, force the indigenous people to sign a treaty, which says, um, you know, they will uh, respect the foreigners who shipwreck off Taiwan, not kill them, uh, and also to build a, a a watchtower. And and through this expedition. He gained uh, this this guy by the name of Charles Legendre. By the way, he he gained knowledge of Taiwan and also the indigenous people on Taiwan. And in eighteen so around eighteen seventies, he found it profitable to offer his service to the Empire of Japan, which um, at the time also just modernized by adopting Westernization, including the Western. Style imperialism and Japan start to expand southwards uh, first to the kingdom of Ryokyo or, or today we know as Okinawa, and when Japan officially annexed uh, um, the well, they declared their annex the uh, Okinawa kingdom in 1870s, and then a group of uh, 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 fishermen from from the from the kingdom of Ryokyo they shipwreck off coast of Taiwan. Um, so at the time, the, the American consul, Charles Legendre, offered his service again uh, but to the, to the Japanese empire, said, hey, I know, I know these people. I, can, I know how to deal with them. And uh, he suggested to the Japanese empire they should land their troops to Taiwan. And, and, and that's what, exactly what happened. So at, at the, in the process, the Qing government had to come to another humiliating treaty with Japan to get the Japanese troops off the Taiwan. But at the same time, uh, in the uh, in the diplomatic negotiations, because it's really the the people from Ryokyo Islands, you know, from the Ryokyo Kingdom that was shipwrecked off Taiwan, but because Japanese claim some kind of ownership over the whole Ryokyo Islands that they, on their behalf, Japan sends the troops. So in this negotiation, China basically acknowledged that Japan's annexing of, of the uh, Ryokyo kingdom. So after that, Japan was in Bolton. They arrested the king and the queens of uh, Ryokyo. They, they, uh, they turned uh, Ryokyo kingdom into Okinawa prefecture. And, and then uh, this is the first kind of American involvement in the kind of the imperialist great game surrounding Taiwan. And then fast forward a couple of uh, 20 years, in 1894, uh, the first Sino-Japanese war broke out over Korea uh, because Japan wanted to, um, you know, turn Korea into its own colony. And and China because China Korea was a tributary of, of China so China sent troops China was suddenly defeated um, in this defeat Japan demanded that China cede the island of Taiwan to the Japanese Empire and uh, that that uh, after that Taiwan became a Japanese colony for 
for the next 50 years until World War II, until World War II. And, but after World War II, um, Japan was, uh, was, had to give up all these territory it acquired from China, from Korea, et cetera, including Taiwan. So Taiwan was returned to China after the Japanese surrender in 1945. Uh, but as we all know, right soon after Japanese surrender, the Chinese Civil War broke out. And, uh, you know, between the, the nationalist government and the Chinese communists, eventually, um, you know, the communists came out as winners. So the nationalist government uh, under Chiang Kai-shek, then they relocated to Taiwan, uh, which they had under their thumb since 1945. You know, they, they, the, uh, while they were there, they were cracking down on uh, people on Taiwan. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we covered this era pretty extensively uh, on the show I did with Xiang Yu. Uh, Xiang Yu, feel free to jump in anytime. Uh, don't oh, yeah. Um, I guess this is a good part for me to jump in because it is a point of confusion on, well, the, 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 the CPC has never, like, actually ruled over Taiwan. So why is Taiwan a part of China? Well, um, there is a legal basis for it. And it goes back all the way to 1943 during the Cairo Declaration when the powers, when the allies were discussing, you know, how to, you know, deal with a defeat of Japan. So an, ex an excerpt from this declaration is all the territories Japan has stolen from the Chinese, such as Manchuria, Formosa, which is Taiwan, and the Pescadores, which is um, Penghu, which is like a smaller island that, that's um, part of Taiwan province, shall be restored to the Republic of China. And then um, in 1945, there was the Potsdam um, Declaration, which states, Japanese sovereignty shall be limited to the islands of Honshu, Hokkaido, Kyushu, Shikoku, and such minor islands as we determine. And, um, you know, Japan also signed an instrument of surrender, which says, we hereby undertake for the emperor, the Japanese government, and their successors to carry out the provisions of the Potsdam Declaration in good faith. And... Um, but then there is, on the separatist side, there is an argument that these are just communiques and not actual treaties. But the instrument of surrender was included in Volume 59 of the United States Statutes at Large, published in 1946, and in Volume 139 of the United, United Nations Treaty Series, issued in 1952. So therefore, the instrument of surrender, which references both the Cairo and Potsdam declarations is a legal binding document as far as the UN, the US, Japan, and China are concerned. Now, um, the, the whole like ordeal with Japan was formally ended in 1951 in the Treaty of San Francisco. But conveniently, China and Korea, which were, you know, victor states of World War II in the war and the war against Japan, were conveniently left out because of the civil wars in the two respective countries. Because I mean, 1951 back then, I mean, it still wasn't well be because because of the United States. United States used uh, as an excuse that China yeah. and Korea still in in civil war to exclude representative from China or Korea from yeah. attending the 1951 San Francisco Treaty, which is supposed to provide the settlement of World War II settlement with Japan. But before 1951, uh, you know, basically U.S. got itself involved in the Chinese Civil War between the nationalists and the communists. I mean, even right after the Japanese surrender, U.S. military carried out the Operation Beleaguer 
which ostensibly uh, its stated goal is uh, U.S. will send troops to evacuate the Imperial Japanese uh, Army and civilians from mainland China. But what they actually did was to ship troops of Chiang Kai-shek, which at the time was mostly bottled in the southwest uh, part of China, to ship them to the Japanese occupied territories in northern China, in Manchuria, and all the areas where there's already communist bases because the U.S. didn't want the communists to control large Chinese cities like Beijing, uh, Tianjin, etc. Uh, they rather want their nationalist uh, Chinese nationalist allies to, 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 to control them. So U.S. actually, for Operation Beleaguer, U.S. employed 60,000 U.S. servicemen, you know, 50,000 Marines, and 10,000 U.S. Navy personnel to China. And U.S. 7th Fleet, right after World War I, they moved their headquarters to Qingdao, China. Uh, uh, you know, that's something people probably don't even realize nowadays because U U.S. wanted to turn China as its main uh, theater of operation in Cold War against Soviet Union, against, you know, the bastion against communism. What, what U.S. want China to do is to become a, like a Chiang Kai-shek led China as a junior partner uh, for United States, uh, basically plays a role that currently Japan is playing for U.S. imperialism uh, as a junior partner to U.S. And, and that's why uh, it was U.S. throw its weight behind the Chiang Kai-shek's government during the Chinese Civil War. Uh, they, they um, you know, besides shipping shipping uh, troops, U.S. also provided arms. During the World War II, U.S. provided China a lot of, uh, you know, land lease equipment. But this equipment, most of the equipment actually never made it to China. Uh, one part is because the uh, difficulty in supply, because, uh, you know, the only way to supply China at that time was through the Hima, flying through the Himalayan hump. Um, and, and so a lot of the equipments that U.S. promised China did not arrive actually until after World War II, just in time for the Chinese Civil War. So all the U.S. military hardware went to Chiang Kai-shek to for uh, for the war against the communists, and, and and U.S. was never a neutral party in this. But when the Chiang Kai-shek looks like when Chiang Kai-shek's defeat was inevitable, uh, there was a period of time when U.S. policy, internal politics, was still undecided about what to do um, with Chiang Kai-shek and Taiwan. Uh, you know, the, the, there, there was a point of, in time that U.S. was ready to uh, just wash its hands off the, the this whole Chinese Civil War business. And, you know, because uh, Mao's People's Liberation Army also had plans in 1950 to cross the Taiwan Strait to liberate Taiwan. And then Korean War happened. And uh, you want to jump in, Xiangyi? Yeah, well, um, first of all, I'm going to finish the thought on like the legal basis of Taiwan as a part of China, but that was also a very good ending point. I do want to talk about the various um, uh, factions of the U.S. ruling class with their different solutions to um, of what to do with um, Taiwan. And it also ties in briefly with the Korean War. And um, so back to 1951, um, the Treaty of San Francisco says Japan renounces all right, title, and claim to Formosa and the Pescadores. 
and the treaty was signed on 1950 in, in September of 1951 and became effective on April 28th, 1952. And um, since the treaty is, does not explicitly state anything beyond Japan surrendering Taiwan and Penghu, separatists claim that the status of Taiwan to this day is legally undetermined per international law. And then once again, they argue that the Cairo and Potsdam declarations were not legally binding. But while China was excluded from the Treaty of San Francisco for the reasons um, Carl explained, the U.S. basically made Japan conclude a separate treaty with um, the so-called ROC government on Taiwan, namely the Treaty of Taipei, which was signed on April 28, 1952, which happens to be the date that the Treaty of San Francisco becomes effective. So it's like a little loophole. So it's like, okay, you're excluded from this treaty, but we're going to have you sign a separate treaty. So, it, you know, and... um. Article 2 of the Treaty of Taipei says, It is recognized under Article 2 of the Treaty of Peace, which Japan signed at the city of San Francisco on September 8, 1951, here and after referred to as the San Francisco Treaty, that Japan has renounced all right, title, and claim to Taiwan and Penghu, as well as the uh, Spratly Islands and the Parcel Islands. And in the same um, Treaty of Taipei, um, Article 10, it says, for the purposes of the present treaty, nationals of the Republic of China shall be deemed to include all inhabitants and former inhabitants of Taiwan, Penghu, and their descendants who are of the Chinese nationality in accordance with the laws and regulations which have been or may hereafter be enforced by the Republic of China in Taiwan and Penghu. And juridical persons of the Republic of China shall be deemed to include all those registered under the laws and regulations which have been or may hereafter be enforced by the Republic of China in Taiwan and Penghu. So the theory of undetermined status of Taiwan is therefore the result of a very selective interpretation of all of these treaties. So whether or not you believe Taiwan is a part of China is one thing, but this goes to show that in regards to the issue, China is abiding by international law while the U.S. is violating it when it supports Taiwan separatism in any way, shape, or form, like whether it be one Taiwan, one China, or two Chinas. Now, some people might be like, well, the Treaty of Taipei was signed with the um, the so-called ROC administration on Taiwan after it had lost control of the mainland and not the PRC government on the mainland. So um, that, that, that doesn't mean that Taiwan is a part of China. But here's the thing. According to both sides of the, um, of the Chinese Civil War, the Chinese Civil War was legally an internal affair of China. And um, even though the um, the administration in Taiwan today doesn't actively pursue these claims, and right now the DPP is leaning more towards separatism, they still operate under a constitution that is a one-China constitution, albeit. I, I like to call it alt-one-China. You know, you have like alt, alt-right in America. You have alt-one-China. So, um Basically, although Taipei no longer actively pursues its territorial claims over the mainland, its constitution still considers Taiwan and the mainland to be just two administrative regions of China and not two countries. And similarly, the PRC views itself as a successor state of the ROC. And so legally, from the perspective of Beijing, Taiwan and other territories controlled by Taipei constitute a renegade region of the republic, but are nonetheless um, de jure a part of the PRC. Now, officially, the so-called ROC position is that um, Taiwan, Penghu, um, Jinmen, and Mazu are the free area of the ROC, while the rest of China, while still legally a part of the so-called ROC, have fallen to communist administration. And I mean, in fact, the additional articles of the so-called ROC constitution begin with the statement, 
To meet the requisites of the nation prior to national unification, the following articles of the ROC Constitution are added or amended to the ROC Constitution in accordance with blah, blah, blah. And here's the thing. In accordance with the U.S. Uh, the UN General Assembly Resolution uh, 2758, China's seat was illegally occupied by the Chiang Kai-shek representatives. And the PRC is a sole legitimate government of China, meaning the U.S. recognizes the PRC as a successor state of the ROC. And therefore, as we can see, Taiwan's status as a part of China is not undetermined. It's just unfinished business. There's simply two political entities legally claiming legitimacy over all of China, with much of the world recognizing the claims of um, the government in Beijing. So the issue of Taiwan independence is hence the issue of abolishing the so-called Republic of China regime and establishing a new independent republic, which even the incumbent DPP in Taiwan refuses to do. And such a new republic would have to be internationally recognized for it to even, you know, hold weight. And I want to get into um, this. My next point is I feel that both the pro and anti-China. I'm almost done, Carl. But both the pro and anti-China crowds of um, in the in the West have this understanding of Taiwan that kind of just begins and ends in 1949. So um, there's some people who are like. There are some like pro-China Westerners who think that the fact that the um, the Taipei regime continuing to claim all the mainland and its constitutional map means that the government thinks it's the the real China or that it's like aggressing on China. But in reality, it's the, the DPP re only reluctantly accepts this framework. And in fact, Beijing does not want the government on Taiwan to drop the claims over the mainland because um, if it actually did that, then that would to them, it would mean it's like a formal formalization of like a two china situation which is which to beijing is like the same as separatism so remember the whole like oh taiwan's a real china blah, 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 that was actually the only point of unity between um chiang kai-shek and mao zedong and the way the dpp tried to skirt around all of this today to satisfy its like separatist voter voter base while keeping you know the international community somewhat happy by maintaining a certain semblance of stability is now they're saying Taiwan is already an independent country called the Republic of China. But this is basically as good as saying we are not actively pursuing independence. But we're gonna we're gonna keep on poking the eye of the dragon. So yeah. But funnily enough, the DPP party platform calls for a referendum to establish a new independent Republic of Taiwan, but in all of its decades of existing, it's never really done so. And Taiwan even says there's no need to do this. So they've basically backpedaled and there are a bunch of phonies when it comes to separatism but they are they are 100 percent puppets of u.s imperialism and that's the main crux of what we're going to discuss today i i just wanted to go back a little bit uh just to remind people that we are in this situation today is because united states actively intervened in the chinese civil war in 1950 um because just as uh, you know, People's Liberation Army was poised to cross the Taiwan Strait, the Korean War ha happened on June 1950, and the U.S. government um, had a like a 180 switch uh, uh, when it comes to the question of Taiwan. Because before Korean War, um, you know, U.S. was kind of kind of uh, wiffle waffle on, on the Taiwan issue. Uh, you know, the State Department basically wanted to wash their hands on Chiang Kai-shek 
whereas some elements in the U.S. military want to support Chiang Kai-shek for the reason of anti-communism. But after uh, the outbreak of Korean War, the, uh, the, the, the balance was tipped toward Pentagon and the militarists. Um, and, and U.S. in this was before the Chinese intervention in the Korean War, mind you. You know, this is June 1950. Right after the Korean War broke out, Sherman authorized the 7th Fleet to sail into the Taiwan Strait. At that time, uh, you know, uh, PRC in 1950, they didn't really have a Navy. So there's nothing they could do when U.S. aircraft carrier battle groups sail into Taiwan Strait. So that is the main reason why Taiwan was not reunified with the mainland in 1949. It's because U.S. military actively intervened to prevent that outcome. And that's why we are here still discussing this issue. Um, it's because Taiwan essentially became a U.S. client state in East Asia, little, you know, during during Vietnam War, um, when, you know, U.S. was bombing and killing civilians in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, the U.S. servicemen, they took their uh, R&R in places like Hong Kong. Hong Kong back then was a British colony, and Taiwan. And, and in fact, uh, in 19... It's the... After the first two Taiwan crises in 1954 and 1958, U.S. stationed troops on Taiwan. Not only stationed troops, U.S. stationed nukes on Taiwan. U.S. stationed nu nukes and nuclear-tipped missiles on Taiwan, pointing at mainland. Uh, and uh, the Ellsberg just leaked a couple of years ago, I think last year, that in 1958, U.S. actually had a plan to nuke mainland China if Mao's People's Liberation Army took some offshore islands, not, not even Taiwan itself, just offshore islands. It's this island of Kinmen, which is about like a couple of kilometers off the coast of uh, mainland Chinese coast. And, and if, if Mao's People's Liberation Army had just took that island, U.S. was going to nuke China. And of course, because Mao's PLA never crossed over so that that nuke scenario didn't happen. In 1958, that was before China acquired its own nuclear weapons. So that's why U.S. back then thought they could use nuke with impunity. And, and you know, that's why MacArthur during Korean War, he, he, he openly proposed to drop like 50 nuclear bombs in Manchuria to cut off a, a, a Chinese supply line. So, so this, is a, this is a long history of U.S. militarism in, in this area. Can I make a quick comment about MacArthur? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah go ahead. so um, part of the reason um, that the U.S. decided to send the 7th Fleet to the Taiwan Strait was because MacArthur, when the Korean War, around the time the Korean War was about to break out, he was basically like, okay, there are four reasons why, uh, well, I think there are more than four reasons, but these are like the four main ones, that we cannot let Taiwan fall to the communists. One, the Aleutian Islands to the, um, to the Mariana Islands was one of the um, chains of defense in the Pacific. And Taiwan was the nearest of all places to both uh, Okinawa and the Philippines, both under U.S. control. And uh, Taiwan is the perfect aircraft carrier. And Taiwan's loss would mean um, breaking this comprehensive um, defense network or aggression network, uh, depending on your perspective. So, yeah. MacArthur actually called Taiwan the 
unsinkable aircraft carrier. Uh, you know, that, that's why we should deny it to the communists. Uh, you know, U.S. has this, uh, that's when they, they formulate theory, this theory called the first island chain, which runs from Aleutian Islands all the way down to J uh, Japan, Okinawa, Taiwan, Philippines, um, all the way around, uh, you know, the Malaysia. Malaysia was a British colony back then, all the way around South China Sea. It was to contain, spread the communism. It was, you know, because you ahead. try to bring this up to liberals today, they'll be like, oh, that's just a Chinese conspiracy theory. But all of this came from like MacArthur and his friends. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was open. It was like they said it. I mean, people just need to Google it <laughs> about the first. Literally, they can just Google the first chain island and uh, MacArthur and unsinkable aircraft carrier. You which have the Taiwan in the results, and so this was. It's all U.S. had planned to you know Taiwan as his kind of out, military outpost in East Asia, you know, from, back from the days of 1850s, you know, but during the Commodore Perry's time. And what, but something changed in 1970, you know, with Nixon visit to China, because um, as, as a part of normalizing U.S.-China relationship, they, the two sides come to agreement. This became what's known as Shanghai Communique, which uh, was signed between Richard Nixon and so and Lai uh, in Shanghai. This is 19, was it 1971 or 1972? Uh, I always get these two days confused. And, and the Shanghai communique specifically states that United States acknowledge that both sides of the Taiwan Strait agree there's only one China, you know, which was a position back then. Mm -hmm. and, and that this is Taiwan issue is essentially a Chinese issue to be resolved by the Chinese people on both sides of Taiwan Strait. And as a result, this is a premise for the present Sino-American relationship. This is a premise for upon which China-U.S. relationship became normalized in 1979, is that U.S. recognized Taiwan is part of China, and there's only one China, and that the, the, the PRC is a sole legitimate government of all of China. And, and as response to that, U.S. pulled its troops out of Taiwan, you know, after 1972, from between 1972 and U.S.-China uh, normalization of ties in 1979, U.S. completely pulled out of the troops. At one point, U.S. has stationed 30,000 troops on Taiwan. And, and during the Vietnam War, 60,000 troops rotated through Taiwan, you know, during their R and R, you know, when they take a break from killing Vietnamese civilians, they say, go, 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 relax in Taiwan. So this was all done away with in uh, by by the end of 1970s. That became the basis for the new China-U.S. relationship, and also part of that uh, also involved China with the help of a lot of the global South countries got itself voted back into the United Nations to take the place of China. You know, before that seat of China was reserved for the Chiang Kai-shek's government on Taiwan, that, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's government was taken, Chiang Kai-shek's regime representative was kicked out of the UN, and that seat was given to the PRC. And, and ever since then, you know, most of the nations in United States nations recognize China as a sole legitimate uh, government they recognize the PRC as a so legitimate government of, of China and the Taiwan is part of China. What 
is happening in the last few years is that U.S. is starting to walk back on this position. They're, they're, they're kind of slowly back away from the Shanghai communique and, and say, oh, well, actually, uh, uh, actually, this, this, we, we said we're just acknowledging their position. It doesn't mean we, we really support one China uh, policy. But then, you know, the, this is what U.S. calls the, the strategic ambiguity. They, they, they wanted to have the gray area so they can have their cake and eat it, too. And, and that lead to like the so-called Taiwan Relation Act, which was passed by Cong U.S. Congress with a lot of the congressmen in the pay of the so-called Taiwan lobby. They, they said the U.S. will help uh, Taiwan with this defense. But so a lot of people now try to say, oh, U.S. is obligated by law, by U.S. law to defend Taiwan. But that's actually not what the Taiwan Relation Act says. It's just it, a, it, a matter of grave concern. Yes, it's a matter of great because it does not say U.S. military must go go die on the beach of Taiwan. It just says this is something that we should be concerned about. And it just that, means that, that if something happens, all they really have to do is have Joe Biden go on TV and make a few stern remarks, and that's and and that's that that follows the Taiwan Relations Act. He's like, yeah, I'm concerned about it. Okay, done. But what in reality, what the Taiwan Relationship Act really says is that U.S. will continue to sell weapons to Taiwan. Mm -hmm. you know, it sell. It says provide weapons of defensive nature. But so that's what it says on paper. But yeah. by <laughs> effect, U.S. continue to sell to Taiwan a lot of very expensive, high platform weapons that will become actually useless. In, in war, but at the great benefit to the U.S. defense ministry, mm -hmm. uh, de defense industry. This is all a grift and racket, and this is why it keeps going because you know the, both the congressmen and all the U.S. defense industry that pays for them, they all benefit, and and that's why they they keep this racket going. And and even people in Taiwan recognize that all these high, um, very expensive weapon they purchased from the United States is essentially useless. And they're paying, they're buying as an act of paying protection money. It's like they 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 are doing it so to please United States. It's like that, the mafia. <laughs> pretty much. And uh, I, I think, Chang Yu, you had a very, um, very apt com uh, kind of comparison of, of between you. something about dogs and the, the dog feeding the dogs. Oh, that wasn't really mine. That was something that Liao said. It's um, okay. saying that like Taiwan is serving as like a guard dog of the U.S. But under normal logic, you know, um, the the dog owner provides the dog with you know kibbles and its dog treats and whatever. But in this case, you have the guard dog, and you're making the dog buy those things from you. <laughs> <laughs> And I think what I want to really connect is, um, in, in a weird way, um, the 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 ending of the severing of diplomatic relations with between the U.S. and the mm -hmm. regime in Taipei, actually emboldened the separatist movement in Taiwan because, um, in the past, I mean, separatism wasn't really popular. It kind of rose arose as this liberal opposition to the KMT because, I mean, the KMT was um a pretty, especially in the first like first few years even up up until like you know the the mid 70s it was pretty brutal by the time it was stabilized it was just like a lot better than before but the, the separatist idea was hey 
why are we still keeping up this facade of the so-called Republic of China being the sole legitimate government of all of China? Hey, now even like the U.S. is not like recognizing it anymore, and um, and we're never this government is never going to take back the mainland. So why can't and we've effectively been governed separately from the rest of China for all these years. So why can't we just formally declare our independence? And a lot of that was because of, well, when the KMT arrived in Taiwan, the KMT um, democracy was suspended because um, of the civil war. So the, the, the justification was, hey, we lost the mainland. So um, we're, we're going to suspend democracy until we reacquire the mainland. So well, the- okay. KM, KMT never really practiced democracy, uh, you know, before 19... 19- before 1990 so so back then it was Chiang Kai-shek wrongs a military dictatorship you know basically until his death in 19 Okay they tried to have a maintain a facade in 1948 <laughs> Yeah they, they, they maintain a facade right they maintain yeah. a facade so, of democracy until yeah. 1948 But, but yeah. the point is the point is this after they went to Taiwan like that they even got rid of that facade so um then like the national the so-called national assembly it was elected in 1948 on the mainland and when the government relocate like the central government relocated to Taiwan the national assembly came with it and then um the so-called president wasn't elected by the people but elected by the national assembly which is and supposed to be elected by the people but because most of the country had fallen to the communists okay yeah we're not going to have elections anymore so they had we call it what do we call it um like like the 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 national assembly of 10,000 years because they never got reelected. It was like by the time like they changed the system in the late 80s, like a lot of the people were like dying or like in wheelchairs. So you had like I mean, Taiwan was a Japanese colony before. And you had like all of a sudden you had these like out of touch elite elites from the mainland who aren't really, you know, they aren't in touch with the people on Taiwan. And they're they're in charge of everything like the um the the so-called president's appointed is um elected by them so that's how Chiang Kai-shek maintained power this whole time and then um also like Taipei was elevated to a provincial level city so then the mayor of Taipei was also like appointed by them and then yeah Taiwan until like the 90s also had like its own like provincial governor provincial governor was also like kind of elected by the the national assembly so you had like so so the republic the so-called republic of china on taiwan is not a colonial force but it behaved in ways that kind of mirrored that so there were legitimate grievances by local taiwanese against these people who you know came from the mainland and between like 1945 and 1949 and to them they had questions they were just like well it seems like they're just here to try to like to to continue fantasizing about retaking the mainland but even if that were to happen would we really benefit from it so then it's um a lot of i like to say this Chiang Kai-shek and his son Jiang Jingwu were both actively against Taiwan separatism but in their mishandling of internal contradictions among the people in Taiwan they certainly sowed a lot of seeds for um, separatist sentiments to arise in the newly formed um new, newly formed um like middle class and that gave rise to the liberal opposition movement that was you know against the KMT and um I mean there's there's a reason the KMT got thrown off the mainland you know <laughs> like the, a lot of the complaints that that the, the Taiwan Taiwanese uh, natives had against the KMT government are the same complaints that got the KMT thrown off the mainland they these are the same elite 
that messed up on mainland and they could continue to misrule on Taiwan, even though they learned some they learned some of their mistakes. For example, they actually started land reform on Taiwan, which they couldn't do back on mainland because back 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 on mainland, their their main support was the landlords on mainland. And because when once they're on Taiwan, most of their uh, power come from the, the fact that they, they have the military, you know, they have the, the army so and they don't rely on Taiwanese local landlords. So that's why they did the land reform. And, and but, 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 you know, these, these, you know, it's, it's just natural, these contradiction that, that would happen. I mean, like if the, the thing is, if it wasn't for the U.S. military intervention in 1950, the, you know, Taiwan would have been uh, would have been liberated. It was because in, in 1950, from the period from 1945 to for, for 1947, I would say from 1947 to 1950, uh, many people on Taiwan actually believe that you know KMT is finished. You know until 1950, all the certainly all the U.S. military aid start to pour into Taiwan, and that resuscitated the Chiang Kai-shek regime. You know, let it rule for another whatever decades you mentioned the local landlords and the local like landed aristocracy use the word native but what he means over here is like people in taiwan who have been there for generations they're not like he's not talking just specifically about indigenous people but um it brings he brings up a really good point because um these the landed aristocracy um when let's say when japan when japan ruled taiwan they kind of like ruled through these people so they were they were used to having a certain amount of power in Taiwan, but then when the KMT came, it, it governed as a, I wouldn't call it fascist. It was more Bonapartist. It was developmentalist. It was developmentalist and it was Bonapartist and Bonapartism is like one section of the ruling class suppressing the other section. And in this case, it was the KMT elite suppressing the, lo the local Taiwanese landed aristocracy. And when the liberal, when, when the liberal opposition movement came to be, um, these, a lot of, You'll notice a lot of the people who ended up rising to the top ranks of what later became the DPP came from families that were part of the local elite. Yeah, so there there is that sort of like, I guess, factional. Um, it, it's not just like a whole identity politics thing. There is this sort of like um, a, a factional strife within the ruling class, within the ruling elite. Yeah, there's also a, there's a class uh, mm -hmm. a, a, a factor which rarely talk about because um, you know their gripe is that during the Japanese occupation area, at least the Japanese colonizer has a decency to co-opt us into the <laughs> rule. But these KMT guys, they just came here and totally disregard us. And oh, one of the one of the <laughs> founding fathers of Taiwan independence, I forgot the separatist movement. I forgot which one. He said that the the true start of the Taiwan separatist movement, what he calls the Taiwan independence movement, was the KMT's land reforms. Think about this. Of all the things that the KMT did in Taiwan, land reform was the one that like probably benefited benefited the people the most. Because without that land reform, they couldn't have later done like gone on that developmentalist route. And um Jiang Jingguo, like, okay, so most people in Taiwan nowadays really don't like Chiang Kai-shek. He's a very, very um contentious figure but his son Jiang Jingguo is more or less universally respected even by many separatists in fact Taiwan recently was trying to like um, present Jiang Jingguo as like somebody who defended Taiwan's sovereignty against um the the big bad the big bad CPC yeah well 
<laughs> Thank you so much for all of that kind of background. Um, I definitely have some follow-up questions, um, but yeah, this is really, really rich. And um, it just, I, it just struck me while you were talking, just kind of how ridiculous I feel that it is for so many um, Western leftists in particular to think that they have a really good handle on the situation when clearly um, there's so much history there. Um, there's so much to know. There's so many, you know, different people, different movements, you know, class politics, things like that, um, that I just feel like most people don't have a good read on this. And they're just kind of going with whatever is being said in, you know, Western media, which is not great. But I'm glad that you really highlighted the the U.S. and the the West role in all of this because that was definitely one of my big questions. And you know how critical Taiwan is for U.S. militarism. And you also, um, uh, you know, it's clear, I guess, that there has been some shifts in U.S. policy towards China and towards this. Right? You talk about Nixon. So uh, my questions. Well, I'm not sure which one would be best to go into first. But I was wondering, you know, I guess like, since then how would you say that the trajectory of US policy has shifted um, and kind of like repivoted towards China and for what reasons? And then also re the separatism, because um, Xiongyu, you're basically, um, you know, painting the picture of the separatist movement really being this kind of like liberal, like starting off as like a liberal elite kind of movement. Um, I guess I'm interested in how has that developed and what would you say, I don't know how to ask, ask this question necessarily, but you know, like what proportion of the Taiwanese population would you say is really um, wrapped up in the separatist movement? And what is what are movements for reunification looking like among Taiwanese people? And, you know, uh, or are there any or, you know, what, what are those dynamics looking like? I think um, the loudest voices on the Internet are, you know, people who are supporting separatism. But um, the vast majority of the people in Taiwan support maintaining the status quo. Now, this has shifted in, let's say, the 90s and even the early 2000s. It was, we want to maintain the status quo, but then work towards eventual reunification. Now, it's more like, we want to maintain the status quo indefinitely, and yeah, maybe kind of eventual separatism when the time comes, when, when situation allows for it. But a lot of this was done in a very top-down fashion because the education, the, the curriculum was like changed by the DPP, like, between like 2000 and 2008 when the first DPP leader was elected. And um, I think um, a huge part of this was um, getting to this a little bit more conspiracy minded, but the the leader who followed um, Chiang Kai-shek's son, Zhang Jingguo. So um, Zhang, Zhang Jingguo was Chiang Kai-shek's son and he died in 1988 and he was succeeded by Li Donghui, who was, who represented the liberal faction of the KMT. Now people think that, Li Donghui was just secretly a separatist this whole time, and he was hiding the fact from the from the Zhangs, and that he was waiting for the opportune moment to take off his mask and come out as a um, separatist, like separatist hero. But I don't believe that. I think he's consistently he was consistently a liberal and, and a neoliberal. And um, so when when he, when his term first began, he talked about like reunification and all that. But and you know why? It's because. Back then, especially with like all the color revolutions in um the in, in Eastern Europe and with um the 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 um the June Fourth incident happening in 1989 in, on the mainland, even on even in mainland China, many people believed that the CPC would fall. I think Yi Donghui bought into that belief, which is why when he first was like for the for the first years of his own leadership, he would talk about. You know, uh, yeah, us Chinese people like reunification and we are building Taiwan up as like a model province for the rest of the country and all that stuff. 
But when it became evident that this wasn't gonna play out, he started saying things like, "Oh, you know, um, Taiwan and the mainland, um, they're special state-to-state relations." And he started kind of um, prom- his one of his um, proteges, who was Tsai Ing-wen, sound familiar? The the current <laughs> leader brought up the whole like two-state theory. And that's when there was this sort of shift where it's like, hey, we need to start extra hardcore localizing and develop develop this distinct Taiwanese identity that's separate from like a Chinese identity. And I believe that this was done because although the KMT was very anti-communist, it instilled in the people in Taiwan this sort of like patriotism towards China. Now, of course, this China that they were patriot patriotic towards didn't necessarily exist. There was like this imagined version of China but it was nonetheless people were proud of being Chinese and they wanted Taiwan to be like this model province for the rest of the country for the day when we liberate our our struggling compatriots under the dark rule of the communists but um see if you even if you had that sort of patriotism because that stuff is strong you'll eventually see hey you know the things on the mainland aren't that bad and even if everything the KMT said about them was true in the past it seems that things are different now and let's work together towards a better future for all chinese people on both sides of the strait now this would be very bad for um you know us interests in taiwan maintaining it as a as a client and maintaining the status quo of it as you know a puppet a puppet regime and Li Donghui, um, he is known as this sort of political reformer because it was under him that Taiwan fully um, democratized politically. But what people don't mention is what he also liberalized was the economy. Yeah, Taiwan was never like a socialist society, but under the leadership of Jiang Jingwu, who was a Bonapartist, there was a lot of protectionism, a lot of state planning. And this was stuff that the U.S. tolerated when there was the communist threat, you know, because they needed to build up like model capitalist societies to prevent people from, you know, I, I think, um, it was, who was it? Um, Kennedy said, if we don't allow for this, we, we make violent revolution inevitable if blah, blah, blah. So basically there was a sort of like kind of, um, they were a little bit more lax about it. But hey, now that the Soviet Union was standing on this last cycle, like, oh, it, it was gone in the 1990s and all that. Well, this isn't cool anymore. We need, we, we need someone more malleable. We don't like, we don't want these Bonaparte strongmen anymore. So hey, Li Denghui, you're our guy. And we're also good. By the way, we're also going to support the liberal opposition movement and kind of support the DPP. And um, yeah, that's that's when the KMT kind of began becoming this sort of empty shell of its former self. To this day, it's like a party without much of an ideology or a message. And that's why the DPP has become so powerful today is because, hey, even if its message is like its best, its slogans for like Taiwan sovereignty, Taiwan independence, blah, blah, blah are all bullshit. It's still a message. It's kind of like how back in the day, um, d- during like the the Chang era, you know, the, the popular slogan was "We're going to reunify China under the three principles of the people" and um, all that stuff. I mean, by the by the time like the eighties came around, people knew it was not going to happen. But it was not the polite. It was the polite thing was to just kind of entertain this sort of fantasy. And nowadays, the polite thing to do is just to entertain the fantasy of Taiwan separatism. But I think deep down, most people know it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, like you pointed out, the the Li Denghui, who is credited by Western media as like the father of Taiwan democracy and the current Taiwan leader, Tsai Ing-wen, they are bona fide uh, opportunists because Li Denghui, back in the days, he even joined the Communist Party on Taiwan. 
And then when the communist uprising failed on Taiwan, he switched side. He went to, you know, like like he joined the KMT. And 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 as you pointed out uh, in our Taiwan series, Xiang uh, Yu, uh, that KMT has a very very uh, extensive secret police apparatus, and there's no way that he would have made it that far on the KMT without selling, without proving his loyalty to the KMT. You know, to 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 kind of because because like. In the KMT, if you have any tint of like pinkness or redness, that will like that you know you will get you you will get sent in prison, you will get prosecuted, you will get exiled. But but Li Denghui is the one that rose through the KMT bureaucracy. You know, like like I I think you are right. Like I'm pretty sure he sold out his former comrades. Think about it: the people who introduced him to that reading group, they were arrested. The people he introduced into the reading group were also arrested, but he he was taken in for interrogation, and after a while, he got he got let out. Yeah. So and, 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 a snitch is a snitch. He, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he and he he he, but he is a very strategic opportunist, uh, and and he saw which way the wind was blowing with the end of the end of the Cold War. And as you mentioned, like, uh, you know, it's not uh, it's not a coincidence that all these U.S. supported. Uh, dictatorship in both Taiwan and South Korea all start falling about the same time, and to be switched with the U.S. approved "quote unquote" liberal democracies, and and it, because as you as you mentioned, because that actually benefits the U.S. imperialism in in East Asia, it lends it a, a veneer of legitimacy and. These gentlemen had too many of their own ideas, and that really annoyed America. I mean, Jiang Jingguo was trying to build his own nukes. Oh yes, yes, that <laughs> that, that uh, and and uh, his son, uh, 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 his son assassinated the the, the the guy who who wrote a biography, unauthorized biography of him, but uh, in United States, you know, and 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 then um, I think what changed recently. In, especially U.S. policy toward China and Taiwan is that um, U.S. now is feeling its hege hegemonic position be under challenge by mm -hmm. the rise of China. I think that's because um, I, I created a Twitter thread to put this into a historical context. You know, like during the Vietnam War, U.S. basically turned the South China Sea into American Lake. You know, U.S. had its air base in the Supic base in, in the Philippines, U.S. had its, its military base in South Vietnam. U.S. Navy ran a so-called Yankee station uh, by sending their, their uh, Navy ships, battleship, uh, their, their aircraft carrier groups from their Navy base in the Philippines, the Supic Bay, to the, the, the Gulf of Tonkin which is uh, bordering North Vietnam. And between North Vietnam and the Chinese island, the Highland Islands, they maintain a constant... Pre the, the reason they call it the Yankee Station is because the U.S. Navy maintain a constant presence there in order to bomb, continually bomb North Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia for nine straight years after 1964. And, 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 and you know, the whole Southeast Asia was U.S. playground. All these, all these, these U.S. troops, when, when they're taking a break from killing uh, innocent civilians in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, they go take their 
so-called R&R in, in places like Hong Kong, in Taiwan, in Bangkok, right? And, and that this is, you know, whole sex industry sprung up in, in Thailand to cater to the U.S. military. And similar thing happened in Taiwan. You know, Taiwan, like the Jiang Kai-shek government in Taiwan is literally retool the kind of the, the sex, the, the sexual service system that was set up by the Imperial Japanese Army to serve the IJA on Taiwan to cater them to serve serve the U.S. servicemen. And but Taiwan is not known to be like a sex tourist destination. Has a lot to do with the fact that U.S. troops withdrew from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and 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 U.S. But U.S. To fast forward to today, U.S. no longer have base in Vietnam. U.S. no longer have base in the Philippines. U.S. don't have any military, or at this point in Taiwan, and and U.S. Navy today, if he wants to dock in Hong Kong for to get some R and R, they need Chinese approval. Hong Kong is no longer a British colony. So right now, U.S. is doing this so-called freedom of navigation patrol in South China Sea. It's basically to to show that oh, we can still go to these places if we, we want. But these are the places that U.S. Navy used to absolutely dominate during the Vietnam War, and 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 now U.S. is feeling it's being pushed out by China, by the rise of China. It, that's why its hegemonic position is feeling threatened, and that is why. U.S. right now is cranking up this new Cold War against China because they, they want to set set back the clock. They think they can do another a uh, Cold War 2.0 and they, you know, just, you know, you, what if we just turn China into Soviet Union? We, we know the playbook. You know, we, we have to decouple. First, we decouple the China-U.S. economy so we, we have no longer have the contact. And then, you know, when the Chinese economy collapses, you know, the Chinese Communist Party will collapse and then we come in here and take over again. I mean, this is kind of the this is going through the, all the military planners head. But of course, things are not going, going according to their plan. That's why they're freaking out. Uh, but but people very need, desperate. Yeah, they're acting very desperate right now because there's actual thinking on the U.S. Like I read all these stupid think tankers. Uh, <laughs> you guys don't have to. They actually, <laughs> <laughs> There's actually thinking among these U.S. military planners that uh, U.S. have only a very small, limited window to contain the rise of China, and this window is is in the next ten to fifteen years. While the U.S. military asset is still vastly superior to that of China's, and and the idea is that after ten fifteen years, the Chinese economy will be growing. To the point, it would totally overshadow the U.S. economy, and and by that point, even you, if U.S. wants to militarily contain China, you will no longer be able to. So, so this now or never, guys, we gotta do something, right? Then we have to capitalize on this window. That's why you you are seeing all these insane provocations around the issue of Taiwan. Like you know, first we 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 send. Over uh, Nancy Pelosi, you know they're, they're trying to play coy. Like Biden is saying, "Oh, you know, we, we can't stop the the U.S. government cannot stop the U.S. congressman. We're a different branch." But guess what? Nancy Pelosi flew on a U.S. Air Force asset, a U.S. Air Force plane. All Biden has to do is like, "Okay, why can't you be like the congressman of that previously visited Taiwan? You can." You can go by a private jet or a commercial airliner. That's that's how U.S. congressmen used to travel to to Taiwan on, on, on their Griff circuit. But well, you know no, why? 
Go ahead. Because right now, because in the past that this wasn't the strategy, but right now the DPP hasn't had any policy successes since its election in 2016. So right now, its policy to um, maintain support among its voter base, like the activist liberal youth, is to spend a lot of money to increase Taiwan's visibility on the global stage, especially for these like so-called like advanced um, d- democratic countries to speak of Taiwan positively. And Nancy Pelosi is the number one fundraiser of the Democratic Party, and the midterms are just right around the corner. So, I mean, she, she made a lot of money... Um, and going to Taiwan now they're going to be like well we actually didn't pay her for a visit because there was no actual money exchange when she was there but yeah this was all paid for ahead of time in multiple payments and um yeah that's that, that's why um yeah. Biden can't he can but his interests prevent him from stopping her especially since he's not a very popular president and such yeah. um such a stunt it's an unprecedented stunt in Taiwan so yeah and, and also the US and also, U.S. military provided escort, fighter yeah. escort for Pelosi to fly to Taiwan. I mean, that's pretty unprecedented, also. Like, the, the, it, it's it's very obvious the U.S. Pentagon, you know, is fully on board with, you know, provoking something to China because right right now they know they still have military superiority over China. Um, so so they want China to. To start a start shooting, and then that will give us an excuse to come in with over. PLA played it very smart, though. Yes, yes. I mean, a lot of people. Yeah, they, it pissed me off. They were like, "Oh, why are you, why are you guys being bougie bougie nationalists? You should be internationalists." It's like, <laughs> why, why? Like China's internal affairs are none of your. Business. China not starting a nuclear war is being internationalist. <laughs> okay, I mean, like a like a nuke exchange is gonna. I mean, that, you think climate cha- change is bad? A nuclear exchange between the U.S. Currents. and China—it's gonna wipe out life on the most of the planet. So, so China by not engaging, playing into U.S. game, and by not engaging into this nuclear war with chicken, is being responsible. But, being but responsible. the U.S. gave China the perfect excuse to, for the first time, like carry out military drills around Taiwan province to the extent that it's doing it that it did in response to Pelosi's visit. If if um, mainland China did that before, um, without US provocation, that would have been seen as aggression. Yes. But yes. now like everyone thought, oh, they're gonna like shoot. They, they, some people <laughs> thought they were gonna shoot down the plane, but they didn't, but then they did this. Relatively looking, it's not aggressive at all. And like, hey, China has a reason. I was like, hey, you yeah. you came into our, you invaded our territory um, under per international law. So we have the right to do this. This is our territory and yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like right now, China is the one that's playing rationally. Uh, there, there, there being the adults in the room right now. I mean, like we, and, and what, what, what Pelosi, what does a Nancy Pelosi trip give United States or even Taiwan for that matter? If you look at it, you know, Taiwan had spent lavishly, of course. U.S. taxpayers spent like ninety million dollars for Pelosi's Asian trip, and. Uh, what what did we get? Pelosi works out for Pelosi. Pelosi got a very nice photo op you know, to show that oh I stood up to the evil CCP and uh, and, and to mostly importantly probably for Nancy Pelosi's own donors right is <laughs> her donor class. But that's what TSMC stuff going on too. But what actually gained for say the U.S. public? Mm-hmm. Right? Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing really. I mean that it's. So, I mean, of course, we all know U.S. politicians are all these 
self-interested uh, bunch that that that's that, that thrive on grift. Uh, nothing is new there, but 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 they're they're doing a way that's very irresponsible. I mean, literally, that could, if China wasn't being the adult in the room, we could have a, a, a much bigger serious situation right now. So, Carl, I was just thinking because um the question was um the like the changes in attitudes, and I th- I want to touch briefly on pivot to Asia and how <laughs> that was done under the um. That was, I think, that was Hillary's idea, essentially. Yes, Hillary's project. <laughs> yes. But notice how pivot to Asia that happened, and then the sunflower movement happened in 2014. In 2014, like I, I don't think it's, I don't think the sunflower movement was isolated. Like you had the umbrella movement in Hong Kong. You also had the Maidan color revolution in Ukraine. This is they're all interconnected. They're and and all, this like, is this is something that people in U.S. don't realize. Like before the sunflower movement in Taiwan. China and uh, mainland China and Taiwan actually are moving to a a, a very amicable uh, a path. You know, the the, the the then leader of Taiwan Ma Yingzhou met with Xi Jinping in Singapore. Right, they, there was a big high visibility summit. And, that was so and, poorly and, timed. He should have met with CPC officials when he first got elected, and his approval rating was up here, up here, and not towards the end when his approval rating yeah. was yeah, very low. Yeah, yeah, but he he's. <laughs> He's also um, uh, under Ma Injo, He also lifted the restriction on direct travel between between um, between mainland China and, and Taiwan. Before, you know, Taiwan businessmen, if they want to fly to Shanghai, they can't go directly. They have to fly to Hong Kong and then take a plane from Hong Kong to Shanghai. And the first time and I went to the mainland was before direct flights, and there was a whole day ordeal. Now it's like I want yeah. to go to the mainland, like two, three hours, boom, there. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 one when Mayinjo wanted to increase economic integration with mainland, when they wanted to sign that, uh, what did they call? What's the acronym? I forgot no. the acronym. I, I forgot the English name. Uh, yeah, yeah, but anyway, th- there was a the trade deal uh, to to bring ta- Taiwan and mainland China closer together. That specific trade deal was what the spark off the the sunflower movement because they feel. Somehow, Ma Yingzhou was selling Taiwan to China, and that that got them to occupy. Did did they occupy Taiwan Parliament that time? They did. They did. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, also when um, when a bunch of new like political superstars, like young like young people from like the middle, like that you had never heard of before, that just like came. It's very suspicious. It's the that, it's like the time geo color revolution stuff. That's the same playbook they did in Hong Kong in 2019. Occupy the Hong Kong legislature. Yeah. I mean, it's the same playbook. Um, and so, so uh, again, you know, use young students like young students who who are, are are more impressionable. And 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 th- this is uh, a, 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 as you say the, the 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 one feature of pivot to Asia. Is that if you look at the what, what is actually pivot to Asia, what what the nature of it? It's not economic, you know. It's not about bringing investment into the Asian Pacific. Pivot to Asia is all military pivots, <laughs> military deployment, deploying military asset to Asia, you know. And 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 this is and and you know when and the reason why Taiwan is so important for the United States. You know, when you read in the Western media, you're talking about, oh, our Asian allies want us to contain China, to to want our presence in in Asia Pacific. When they're talking about Asia 
al Asian allies. They're not talking about Malaysia. They're talking talk about Indonesia. They're not talking about Vietnam, right? And and it, they're not even talking about Philippines because you know <laughs> since Duterte's took power. Um, so they're specifically talking about Japan and government of Taiwan. I mean, even even South Korea is wants to just like do business with China. They, they're not fully on board with the U.S. military containment with China. So 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 it's really just Japan and Taiwan, and and that that's what our media mean when they're talking about our Asian allies require U.S. military presence in, in Far East. Mm -hmm. 2014 was also the year that the DPP really just became like the like the um it became very woke washed like before like when Chen Shui-bian was leader from like 2000 to 2008 the impression of the DPP was like oh it's like the redneck party <laughs> whereas like now now it's like now it's like the hip like every, the young people like it party is the cosmopolitan party and um it's yeah it's it's all that, that NGO it's uh, it's that NGO money going in and like yeah the, I, I, well I have to give it to them the DPP politicians are very opportunistic and they're very being strategic about it I mean uh, they're not a lot smart about it than the, the KMT because you know the KMT are just drifting so 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 it seems you know for the young people, they don't have much choice. It's like uh, it's like United States. We're stuck with Republicans and Democrats. You know, like <laughs> what, what the hell? There's not even a choice here. They're basically mm -hmm. the same party, you know, with mm -hmm. different faces. And that that's that's. I mean, Taiwan has that same problem. <laughs> it's yeah. It's don't really like like um. What what he really did was he turned the DPP he. Turn the KMT basically into like a DPP and the DPP like into like a KMT. He, like where whereas before they're actually when in the height of the liberal opposition movement there was a difference. But then by the yeah. by the time Li Denghui stepped down, it was like both parties were Li Denghuiified. And 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 really the only difference between the two parties in Taiwan is coming to the their official stance on the China issue. Official right? stance. Yeah, the official their, stance. In practice stance, yeah. they're both mostly status quo. But see, Taiwan continue is... to grift. Continue to grift. The same stance that U.S. politicians have in U.S. It's just continue to grift. Uh, but 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 they, you know they 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 uh, but they still have to do something that's divisive enough to get their voter, you know, to appear to to their their core voter base. And, and I that's do just... think the KMT is becoming the sort of Big Ten opposition party towards the DPP, but it just still lacks this core message that can people can unite around. Like right now, they're just like, okay, we don't like the DPP. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, I mean, Taiwan being a so-called liberal democracy has all these the same ills that's that's affecting the, the so-called liberal democracy in the West. Like It's United funny States. because in the 2000s, when there were like 1990s and 2000s, there were a lot of like fistfights in parliament. People in Taiwan would just be like, oh, this is just because our democracy is still immature. But one day we'll be like, you know, America, more civilized and whatever. No, I don't believe that. You know what I believe? I believe that... Back then, society was really polarized in Taiwan, and that's just what liberal democracy is when a society is super polarized. And they were ahead of the curve because America is becoming that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, again, thank you for all of that. And 
Yeah, it's true. I think this kind of veneer, it was interesting that you mentioned that, you know, a lot of these uh, places that the U.S. was intervening in um, at the same time kind of moved away from this kind of dictatorship model to this veneer of liberal democracy, because that's definitely a talking point that you hear all the time that, you know, Taiwan is the most democratic place in, you know, East Asia. And so, um, and well, then they this said is that like even when China goes around. Mm. <laughs> so. What does that yeah. mean? It, it, it means that there are most, there are our least problematic people out there compared to our political enemies. They do our bidding to a certain extent. I yeah. think I think I forgot who said said that, but someone in from U.S. kind of let it slip. They said, maybe it was Hillary Clinton. Someone said that U.S. is a Western Western democracy. They didn't even say liberal democracy. The mm -hmm. Taiwan is a Western democracy. What what they're really saying is like Taiwan is like our model student. You know, they, they, yeah. it's like our model client state. You, you do our yeah. business. You know what's interesting when um when Li Denghui succeeded Jiang Jingguo because he succeeded him because Jiang Jingguo died and he was the vice leader, so he could continue his term. But like the only the, Jiang Jingguo's term only had two years left so the u.s is very worried that Li Dongwei wouldn't like maintain his power and that there would be some sort of palace coup because back then in taiwan the um true leadership lied in the chairmanship of the kmt not as like the so-called like president Li Dongwei was good enough with playing with power to worm his way up but there was a point of uncertainty which is why like as soon as jiang jingwu died the u.s went in and said hey you guys have to just like um totally dismantle your nuclear weapons program because they were worried that um, Hao Bocun, who was like even more of a Bonapartist than Jiang Jingguo, like if you read his um, if you read his uh, like memoir, mm -hmm. like yeah, he's anti-communist, but he's also like constantly like talking shit about the CIA, like mm -hmm. like he, pointing pointing fingers at like um, he's like oh why why are they telling we're Chinese like they're pointing their fingers like at us and it's it's our own business. The U.S. was worried that he might um take power in a power palace coup. And here's the other thing. Hao Bozhen, this Bonapartist guy, was the um, chief of general staff of the army in the 1980s. Which means today, the all the top brass of the army basically was appointed by him. So right, this I is mean, the problem with the separatists. Like, they don't have much foothold in the military. Well, this is a kind of, the, this, this is a dilemma, right? That's why the DPP were trying to nerf the Taiwan military by cutting the the, the military service to like what four months now <laughs> to yeah. like and, and and the u.s constantly complain about that though u.s taiwan is not serious about defending itself of course not because their plan is to have u.s to to come in and defend taiwan but u.s plan is to to bleed you know just to turn Taiwan as a proxy against China, like the same way they use uh, the, the Ukraine US going to, to to bleed Russians, they, you know, the the, the 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 you know, right now U.S. is fighting Russian to the last Ukrainians, and they want to you know do the same thing to Taiwan. That's why they're upset when they say Taiwan is not serious about defending themselves. But 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 from the perspective of, of even the Taiwan separatists, it's like. Why should we lift a finger? Well, like U.S., you're the one. You're the U.S. You're the one with all the military power. You should fight for us. And and go ahead. The DPP is being so reckless because um they've kind of convinced separatists that the U.S. will come and defend us. Yeah, 
But it's not true because if you look at what the U.S. is strategically doing right now, well, first off, it's trying to get TSMC to move their a lot of their production facilities to Arizona. They're getting a lot of their com- a lot of the companies are like thinking about withdrawing their personnel back to the U.S. That's not what you do when you're dedicated to when you're committed to defending someone. They're already you're you're, you're um, how do you say Taokong? You're emptying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. emptying out. Yeah, they're you're emptying, emptying out. out you're Taiwan taking everything. Well, you're not going to defend the economy. Yeah, yeah because, and, because they they feel like oh China is just going to come in and and take it over, and that's why U.S. never sell like the top quality weapons to Taiwan in the first place because they feel one day that he just fell into the Chinese communist hands. So so we can only give them the, the kind of the marginal stuff. That's not too important. You and, know, the military and, service and, thing, though, if and, I were born one year later, my service would be four months, but I have to do one year. Oh, fuck. oh wow. And uh, you you're crazy mm-hmm. for for going through with that man, but 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 from what you're describing, it's not too bad that if you get to serve from home. <laughs> well, it's not it's, it's not it's it's not quite that. I, I had to do boot camp, but okay, if I don't okay. do it, I become a fugitive. And here's the other thing: I I'm thinking about eventually pursuing politics in Taiwan. A mm-hmm. lot of the separatists find loopholes to dodge the draft, and um, it's a very powerful message if you can tell them, hey. You're pursuing all of these reckless policies, but you dodged your draft. You never put your life on the line, and you're putting. But then, with with your reckless policies, the people who are who it's impacting are people like me, who are not on board with your recklessness, and also a bunch of other just your 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 fellow compatriots, your these innocent lives, these kids, these these young boys. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of them, like if you don't go yeah. to college, you do it. You serve when you're 18, I guess. If you go to grad school and stuff, you serve later. But a so lot of them are still young boys. There's one one other point I want to raise is uh, you know in the U.S. media we always present like all oh, this uh, uh, hapless uh, uh, you know Taiwan that's also constantly threatened by this big giant uh, mainland China. So I had to. That's why where I come in with a historical perspective. Um, uh, Jiang Kai-shek when he moved to Taiwan, he had the most of the he inherited the most of the asset of the. The, the the navy and the air force of the republic of china so so the chinese mainland the prc actually did not have the naval and air air superiority particularly over taiwan strait jiang kai-shek imposed a naval block around all the mainland chinese ports from shanghai all the way down to near hong kong and and um after korean war after u.s fully supported Jiang Kai-shek regime on Taiwan, um, they were intercepting all ships, uh, all foreign ships going to going to mainland Chinese ports, even British flagships from Hong Kong, um, and and you know they, you know they're basically doing open sea piracy with the full blessing of United States, with the result that um, PRC shipping, the civilian shipping, for decades they 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 avoided the Taiwan Strait. They go. They went around Taiwan through the other side, through the Philippine seas, and and the first time, the People's Liberation uh, Army's navy that passed through the Taiwan Strait is in 1974. It's in 1974, and and so so before at one point, you you, you when U.S. set up that the ridiculous uh, air self identification zone around Taiwan. That um, you know, at that time, U.S. set up the so-called midline across the Taiwan Strait, and that midline wasn't for uh, that midline was for 
so Jiang Kai-she's Air Force don't cross to the mainland side to cause trouble. <laughs> that could involve U.S. Uh, because at that time, because Taiwan had the air superiority. And that is why they, they included large swath of airspace directly above mainland China itself. Because, the, you know, at that time, because they could. And, and it's only like in the 1980s after... The, the mainland and Taiwan relationship became uh, more amicable that the Chinese uh, civilian traffic, civilian uh, uh, merchant shipping finally were traversing through the Taiwan Strait. So what we're seeing today is because the rise of China, you know, that 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 situation is reversed. So that's why U.S. is feeling this onset of panic, whereas they didn't have before. Before, before even their client states, Taiwan, you know, has could have the capability of blocking off Taiwan Strait. Uh, and now now US aircraft carrier is is uh they're they're very wise to keep the US car- aircraft carrier from the Taiwan Strait now. Whereas mm-hmm. before Chinese sh- worship couldn't even traverse. So so this is a total reverse of situation from the nineteen seventies. Again, this is why US is flipping out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, for me, it's it's also just such like naked, like it's so obvious, right? So you had kind of the the Clinton years where um, we were actually opening up to China and, and all the capitalists were then exporting all of their production over there. And then lo and behold, you know, China took a different development path than American neoliberalism. And so they actually started to raise people out of poverty, their economy was growing, etc. Um, and now there's obviously this anxiety that, oh, no, they're gonna, they're out competing competing us, right? Like they're yes. doing, they're doing it. They're doing what we didn't want them to do, right? They're doing what you know we wanted to do, but they're doing it better, and they're helping more people as they do it, right? And so that's why I think there's so much. It's so funny, you know, like all like the Huawei stuff and the five G stuff. It's just and such TikTok. a naked and TikTok. Yeah, and TikTok. Right? They're, they're now saying TikTok is a national security issue because yeah. you know it's going to corrupt our youth. But I mean, yeah. like really, it's because the U.S. tech company is not being able to, like Facebook, Google, Apple, not finding themselves be able to compete so so they want yeah. to kill their competitor that, that's really exactly what it's about. yeah and it's so naked it, it's just so obvious because i mean i think even one of the you know the the biggest uh opposers of 5g was like you know the ceo of google or something you know it, it's just yes. really obvious yes. that Eric Schmidt. Yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> and meanwhile we know that the nsa is spying on all of us but for some reason we're being taught to believe that like oh no like china this is such a huge threat and then you have these other you know again just going back to the same old playbook like oh well we have to defend democracy like with all the pink washing in israel things like that it's like oh we need to support our allies that are democratic and western against all these evil countries around them and then um go in there militarily when like it's just so obvious that it's like well you're just upset that you're you're losing yeah <laughs> and, 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 the, and the propaganda is to- so so totally like like 1984 because um they're, they're telling us how somehow these chinese tech technology companies pose threat to 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 america it's like look what's chinese government gonna do with your data man like like they don't have jurisdiction over you american citizen it's a mm-hmm. it's a united states government you know with their prison program with their with their youth dropping with their um they have all these technology company google apple uh, Facebook embedded with you know the American security apparatus. It's American government that have jurisdiction over you. And mm-hmm. and one of the big complaint about Huawei is that because U.S. Uh, 
U.S. intelligence, uh, they have the back door built in through Google, Facebook, Apple, etc. Yeah. Uh, but 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 Huawei's outside their control, so so it's 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 totally unacceptable for them to have this kind of the the, the tech giant that, that's getting making inroads as outside their control that they could exactly. lift their hood and 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 do what they used to do. So so mm-hmm. yeah. So so this is. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. One last comment I wanted to make. Um, I, I you said something that reminded me of this, and sorry, I'm like half asleep right now. So. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, a lot of people might bring up, well, why doesn't like um, why can't like mainland China? Well, they say China. Why can't China just respect people's like the Taiwanese people's wishes for independence? But why can't the U.S. respect the um the sovereignty of other countries and like stay out stay out of the issue and just let them um resolve these issues on their own accord because when when you have one side that's like you have one side with a bunch of ngos that are u.s funded like you 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 understand the concept of grooming like you know you have a predatory individual grooming an individual you oftentimes a young a young like girl or young woman and whatever and a lot of times like people who are groomed will you know say say and do certain things and they say that oh it's consensual this is what they want they're happy but objectively is that the case now if Grooming can happen on an individual level. It can certainly happen on a whole societal level. So if you if, if you if you if you are to believe that grooming can happen to an individual, but you don't believe that it could happen to a whole society, when there are a bunch of like you have the Ford Foundation, you have like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you have like the NED, you have like you know the Open Open Society Foundation, what? like that you know. It, it, and uh, look at all the hong kong youth that's crying at for the queen elizabeth's uh, uh, uh funeral i mean like they the 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 very cringy post they talk about how how uh you know at least uh, in hong kong the colonialism wasn't brought through violence it's like what are you talking about it's like oh. the, the the whole whole reason hong kong became a colony is because he was through opium war and well, a lot of and, those and, kids and, were born in like 1996 yeah like none of these none of these kids of course actually lived through the british colonial rule because many of them are like born in the 90s and mm-hmm. uh and and, and the, the 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 you know even 1967 1967 there was a big protest in hong kong and the british actually had to send in troops people were killed you know like um over 50 people were killed in in hong kong uh, whereas 2019 nobody 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 died from the hong kong police but 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 people yeah like just go to your point that the, the these these young people unfortunately they they bought into all these western propaganda i mean it's it's i i see the similar thing happening in hong kong as well as in taiwan that that's why they think they 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 really believe in the U.S. hegemony. <laughs> That's why they thought, okay, oh, U.S. for sure is gonna sweep in and protect us, and and uh, and and what what little do they know? U.S. is just see everybody as palms to be used to be sacrificed at any time. Just like look at the mm-hmm. Ukrainians, what they're if, um, if China funded a bunch, had like a bunch of like private foundations that like came into America and heavily impacted academia and also did like, you know, shadowy, did like shadowy organizations and like protests, like organized like protests in secret, like, and all that. And 
within the generation, you have a bunch of like Americans saying a bunch of like pro Chinese things. Would you consider that organic? No. no. Okay. So the, the thing is, right now, that's what U.S. media is claiming. You know, you, you see this ridiculous report on uh, uh, how Chinese state media reporting on BLM movement is, like, inciting race <laughs> riots in U.S. You're like, are you kidding me? Are you, are you saying that the racial problems in U.S. is a result of Chinese propaganda? Are you, are you, are you really serious right now? I mean, like, this is... Uh, but. Well, this is a live this is a kind of the crazy world we live in like we mm -hmm. live in the real 1984 right now mm -hmm. well, that's a great point though about I, I always think about that like if the situation was reversed if it was like yeah china russia venezuela doing the same thing in america i mean our response first of all be way more extreme <laughs> and <Yes>. violent <laughs> and people would have much you know much different things to say about it but yeah shang you uh the the point you brought up is is a good one is that it that is definitely a liberal talking point like why doesn't china just acknowledge Chinese independence um but you know with the stipulation that the u.s has to withdraw militarily and that taiwan has to remain neutral right well, why doesn't why, 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 why hasn't taiwan declared like yeah, I mean, like I, how do you how do you how do you acknowledge independence has never been declared? Is also a good question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know, like the, the Taiwan government itself has not declared independence. So yeah, so people. Yeah, so so it became a mood issue. So people will say things right. like, "Oh, well, there are still certain countries that recognize Taiwan. They actually don't recognize Taiwan as a country, though. They have they have diplomatic relations with the so-called Republic of China. Republic and of although, China, like yeah. the so-called Republic of China is run by people who want to say, oh, the Republic of China is just another word for Taiwan. Well, the Constitution says otherwise. The Constitution says there is a mainland area, there's a Taiwan area. Both constitute the so-called Republic of China, and that's this is part of why. But Beijing but like me, no, no matter what you your your ideology is, you know, I think the first thing we I think all we can all agree, we should not provoke a war <laughs> over the Taiwan Strait. We should not increase tension. But this is what U.S. action is doing right now. U.S. U.S. is making the area less safe. You know, less peaceful than it was. Like, like we we talk about before the 2014 uh, sunflower movement in Taiwan, mainly China and Taiwan actually moving closer together on, on a path of economic integration. That was put put, put a stop to it by and the people South in Taiwan. Army. In like 2008, 2009, they were very optimistic about it. Yes. Yeah, I mean that's that's also when like the DPP started making moves as the opposition party to get like a new yeah. generation of youth to be have like these anti mainland sentiments. Yeah, that yeah. were like and, a little and, bit different from the anti mainland sentiments from before, I must say. But yeah, mm -hmm. I mean this is uh, this is again this this it's just coincidence. It happened at the same time with uh, Hillary's pivot to Asia, and uh, you know so so we we right now I just. Can, like, can, we, can we all just get along right can we all just get along <laughs> seriously i mean i mean that but 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 you know right now people media try to portray china as aggressors like right now china and taiwan actually compared to 1950s when the actually the, the both sides were shelling each other with artillery duels now it's actually a lot better you know like now there's a million taiwanese studying living in mainland china 
you know, you like, can't not, go not, anywhere in mainland China, China without seeing Taiwan influence. I must say, yeah, and, and there two million. This is out of uh, island population of twenty five million. Two million out of twenty five million, because that's almost like ten percent, right? I mean, think about that. that like, like the but, but, but what what U.S. right now is doing is making war more likely, not less likely, and mm -hmm. and, and I think we can all agree that's a bad thing. Like absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think read the liberal talking point. It's also pretty unrealistic for the U.S. to withdraw militarily and for Taiwan to remain neutral. I mean, like, yeah, look at look at Ukraine, right? Like, uh, when when has that ever <laughs> panned out that they would actually withdraw and and have the place if you declare independence, then then the U.S. is going to install the military. There, what's the for sure? For sure. Here's the thing. In theory, I guess. Um, okay, see, when people say, "Oh, you're against Taiwan independence," independence from what? I am for Taiwan's independence from neoliberalism. Now, the the current Taiwan separatist movement as it stands, what does it do? It further um, embroils Taiwan into this neoliberal system, which mm -hmm. is why I am I stand resolutely opposed to the separatist movement. I don't care what they say because objectively, the moves they're making, it's formalized. It's essentially an attempt to formalize the um the the client status that it currently that, objectively exactly, holds with the yeah, united that's states exactly what and that's is. the main issue that um that why mainland china is cannot accept this cannot accept this because it, it, it's not about whether or not taiwan is like can be a separate country or whatever it's it's geopolitics first and foremost and the second is well international relations there's an established like there are established rules like hey you impose these international laws on us we follow them why how why, why are you all of a sudden trying to change the rules that's just not fair but yeah, I mean, right now is the U.S. that's that's trying to trying to walk back from the exactly from 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 the foundation of the Sino-American relationship that was built in 1971 with a Nixon visit. Now, 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 U.S. is like, you know what? Sorry, we made a mistake. You know, now, <laughs> now, China is made is getting more powerful. We didn't realize that we back then we just want to use China's against soviet union to play the china card we didn't mean for china to get more powerful so mm -hmm. so let's let's walk back the clock but yeah uh, here's the number yeah. one rule of u.s imperialism you you can be as we we want you to succeed we want you to thrive but never surpass us or get close to exactly you. yes exactly. <laughs> yeah exactly so uh is there anything else you wanted to to add on i guess um you know separatism um you know u.s propagations etc before we move on to just some of some of the good things that china's been doing i will say shang yu i do hope you run uh for politics there and just kind of make it make a splash at least with um you know pushing back against some of these talking points but yeah mm -hmm. well i think we did cover the pelosi visit for the most mm -hmm. part um mm -hmm. how is it framed in the western media well i guess everyone your viewers probably know how it was framed in the western media taiwanese media right. well taiwanese media is essentially the chinese translation of of western media and um i guess mainland chinese media um you know uh, well pelosi bad yeah well, okay. I guess there is, um, I know recently, I don't know too much about this, but the U.S. is now pledging even more increased economic collaboration with Taiwan. Is that correct? So um, I guess talk about the the significance of that and, you know, how well, there, you think China will respond. Their so-called economic cooperation with Taiwan includes um, making the Taiwan a semiconductor to divulge their their secrets, their techno technological secret to U.S. Uh, to move their factories from Taiwan 
to us. You know,、mm. oh, the, the word you're looking for, Ha Xiangyu, is hollowing out, hollowing、oh, yeah, yeah, out the Taiwan economy. Because right now, the Tai Taiwan's economy has been hollowed out since 1990s when. When mainland China started building up, so all these Taiwanese factories, manufacturing and all that, yeah, stuff all the manufacturers say like, "Hey, we can move to mainland China and pay our workers less." And、uh, and, and, and、uh, yeah, so so they all moved. So so what Tai what would remain on Taiwan was the TSMC, the semiconductor industry. Which you get rid of TSMC, Taiwan's economic growth is negative. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's the mainstay, the pillar of the Taiwan economy right now. And、it's、what very dangerous? It's like a Saudi Arabia. It's like Saudi Arabia and oil, but the difference is oil is firmly under their soil. TSMC and now the U.S. is trying to get Taiwan to move its um facilities. And the thing with them, the 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 semiconductor industry, these chips is every generation lasts like three to five years, and that's when you have to do new R and D to like kind of you know like I don't know the technical terms, but you're essentially rolling dice with God. And, and, and TSMC and, and, is not going to be number one forever. There's no guarantee. And now the U.S. is trying to bail out Intel and make them transfer their technology to Intel. Essentially, TSMC had a good position because their close proximity to China and China was is actually one of the largest market for TSMC. But right now, U.S. is saying we're going to sanction anybody who sells chips to Huawei. Right? Like even if you're a Taiwanese company, even if you're TSMC. We do. We would not allow you to sell chips to Huawei because、mm-hmm. if you do, because you also sell to the U.S. market, that make you fall under our jurisdiction, and then we are going to sanction you. So now TSMC can't sell chip sell chips to to Huawei, even though that was one of their biggest customer. And United States is making TSMC to open factories instead in in U.S. So in 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 a way, U.S. is stealing the Taiwan's economic jewel and not giving anything back. Essentially, that's not economic cooperation.、Mm-hmm. That's more like <laughs> looting. Yeah, it's looting. And if um TSMC loses its um like its status as like the number one like um chips manufacturer. You're gonna see a recession in Taiwan, 2024, 2025, and if the DPP gets reelected and they get desperate, who knows what they're gonna do? They might become more reckless. I hope not, um, because it's people's lives they're playing with to the benefit of only a few, um, the 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 um opportunists w- within them, you know, the ruling the ruling elites.、Mm-hmm. I mean, when、yeah. your military is having like commercials, like ap- like propaganda, like saying, "Oh, we're." We're、um, disguising uh, construction, uh, military equipment as construction equipment, and we're like hiding tanks in like residential garages. That tells me you don't have a plan for victory. You only have a plan for using the civilian population as human shields, and that's very dangerous and very careless. And yeah,、mm-hmm. absolutely.、Um, yeah, it's it's really terrible. And I I would think it would be more obvious, I guess, to more people, you know, what's going on and and what interests are at play here. But sadly, it doesn't seem to be. So、That's、thank you. Part of why I want to enter politics and just lay these facts out. I don't. If I、mm-hmm. enter politics, I'm not going to even run on a pro or anti reunification separatist separatist policy. It'll just be, hey, um, we love Taiwan, and we Taiwan's future should be determined by, um. The people on Taiwan, and we need a government. We need policymakers that serve the people on Taiwan. And the implication is the DPP is not doing that.
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a little bit dying over here. Yeah. <laughs> it's 11.50. Oh, shoot. Yeah, it's so late. <laughs> so no worries. I mean, the only other thing I was going to touch on was kind of these better things that China's been doing, like Belt and Road. Um, but we can just leave that and... Um, and just kind of end it here as kind of a, a geopolitics. I, I, can talk, I can talk a little bit about Belt and Road. I mean, like, okay. I mean, what people, U.S. has, uh, so so there's now, now U.S. media is running with this debt trap diplomacy thing that somehow China is out there to debt trap all these global South countries to make them ply into the Chinese interests. Mm -hmm. um, I, I recommend people to uh, Google this article called The Debt Trap is a Myth. This is an article by Deborah Brodigan, who is actually one of the foremost uh, scholars on China-Africa relationship. And she wrote this article, I think it's either in Foreign Policy or Atlantic, you know, one of those magazine famous for its pro ccp views right i mean <laughs> no uh, and the, 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 but the, the, it's a very good article and and, and he also point out the origin of the so-called debt diplomacy mean it was uh, originated in some think tank in india <laughs> and then then he was picked up by all the western media and just ran with it with very little evidence by the way and 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 what China is doing actually is offering alternative because before the only game in town is INF and World Bank and we yeah. all know how they exploit the global South nations. Now the the countries in Africa, Southeast Asia, they have a another per they have an alternative. They have they can they can turn to China for financing. They don't have to go to IMF and World Bank. And 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 then you know under their very stringent conditions, and, and this is why the U U.S. and also to a certain extent European media are freaking out because now, before they were only game in town, and now now China again is a competitor. This is mm -hmm. competitor, and and they, and also it kind of all these talk about that diplomacy kind of deprives the agency of the the Africans. Uh, 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 other Asian uh, South American nations, because these these are the deals that these governments interwillingly with China through through their bilateral relationship. I mean, and sometimes the Western media is turned neo-colonialism. No, no, no. China is not holding a gun to anybody. Say, hey, you got to take my money, you mm -hmm. know, or else, or else Let's I'm going to send you my, my gunboats like like the the, the British did. Um, like, like you, you have a choice. You, you, if you don't want to deal with the, the Chinese, you know, you don't have to. The previous Greece uh, finance minister actually talked about this. Yeah. Uh, who is a previous port. And uh, China came in as the biggest investor. And, and at one point, they wanted to renegotiate the deal with China. And China agreed. And then they sat down and they renegotiated the deal. And and so again, you know, you you what the Western media reporting is taking away agency from all these countries that's doing business with China. So somehow these are again, these are like silly or or mindless or or or, or childlike African nations who mm -hmm. cannot, you know, who do not know their own best interests. Only we, the 
the the white nations of Europe and United States, we know what's best for the Africans. You know, mm-hmm. unlike the government. I mean, yeah, like, it's kind of like when liberals encounter like somebody who's not white and they say something that's like doesn't go along with the liberal playbook, and they just be like, "Oh, you're just so brainwashed." <laughs> it is. It's 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 like, oh, you you're falling to Chinese propaganda. It's like, mm-hmm. no, these all these African nations are acting out of their own interests you know when they conclude the term with china and, yes and, yeah and, and, and again you know i don't see china sending their aircraft carriers to bomb any nations for like you know for for not paying the debts on the contrary china recently just uh do, did another round of debt forgiveness yeah uh, and and yeah so 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 again like there's no evidence to support this so-called debt trap diplomacy and and what china is doing is building connectivity because when china builds a port on the east coast of africa it's not that it's not only china that could use a port the port sits on an ocean anybody could sail into a port so this this increases global connectivity it's it's a good thing uh, but again, you know, it's not this, it's not the export of like speculative, like fictional commodities. It's um, it, it's you're creating infrastructure to facilitate the movement of actual physical good. That's where value comes from. It's not NFT. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually you're, you're giving these countries um, the tools they need to become more prosperous. Yeah. And it's trying to doing it out of its, the kindness of its hearts. Not necessarily because it's mutually beneficial. You want trade? Yeah, I mean, I mean, China is of course doing it because you benefits yeah. China. I mean, trade is good. The, yeah, the problem and, with and, imperialism and, is like finance capital, just like going in and controlling. You have banks controlling people rather than people controlling banks. For example, you have mm-hmm. capital controlling people and not the other way around. And 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 the, the imperialism is really about the power, the power imbalance, right? You 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 are imposing. Mm-hmm. On the other nations, and and you you like you when you literally sell your gunboats and and force them to sign a treaty. Now, China it's kind of like the British. They they yeah they got rid of the military from like their former colonies, but they kept their banks there, so it's still imperialist. Imperialism isn't just like oh big country like signs a deal with small country like some people like are trying to say. Britain is a small country. Imperialism. Hong Kong. HSBC is still there. Imperialism is not trade. Okay, trade is not imperialism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> trade, trade happens. Trade could happen among you know equal nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would definitely recommend. I don't know if you've heard of it. The um, the Crane podcast. It's a really relatively new podcast, but it's hosted by two hosts from different parts of Africa, and they really the whole thing is about um, you know China and African relations and investments and kind of yeah debunking this kind of debt trap discourse that's going around, and it's really interesting. And yeah, as you pointed out, I mean the deals that they're offering are way better just absolutely way better and it's not like the imf and world bank where it comes with all these strings attached to restructure their economies to be neoliberal and to actually you know harm harm the people right so um so yeah thank you for touching on that um i'm sure you both are very very tired so i'll let you both go but this was really incredible and i would definitely recommend everyone check out the silk and steel podcast everyone check out shang yu's uh music and uh social media 
if you guys want to checking out the music oh. for a while okay <laughs> my new stuff is coming out soon and it's a lot better than like the stuff i have currently i have this thing where i all i make i release stuff and then after they, they can here. check out your music while they wait for your your i don't like my own music they can wait until like, my new stuff comes out soon no no he's it, don't listen to him guys his stuff is good i like <laughs> okay well check it out or maybe wait for the the new stuff but um but yeah, thank you both for coming on, and um, yeah, we'll we'll talk soon. If you want to announcement, oh yep. Um, so I was recently removed from Twitter. I think I'm gonna stay off Twitter for a while because it's better for me. But maybe one day, because I was banned for ban evasion, one day, maybe like in a year, or two years, a very good friend of mine who um, you know, none of you guys know yet, but I know him personally. I've known him all my life. Might create a Twitter. And um, he and I share very similar ideas on a lot of things. And um, if my friend um, does create a Twitter, I will make an announcement on my other social media. But it won't be for a while because um, that friend is very busy, if you know what I mean. Is, is, he, right. is, he, is your friend as competitive as you on social media? <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to tell him to not be as competitive. Okay, I'm still trying good. to come up with... Um, Oh, uh, because give up, give my friend a name. My friend does not have a name yet. For this, despite okay. having known him for this long, he doesn't have a name yet. So I'm trying to give him a name, but yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. All right, sounds good. Yeah, I also left Twitter. Just it's not a not a good place for me either. But <laughs> but why is George? Why do you? Yeah, I, I waste so much time on Twitter. You know, you you guys, you guys, yeah. it's addictive. Right. It yeah, really it is. is. I mean, anyway. that's what social media is assigned to. Is it's literally a designed to be addictive so you you, you spend more time on it absolutely yeah yeah anyway thank you both again i'll link to all of your uh projects and the social media you do have in the description box below and um yeah just really appreciate you coming on no, thank you so much for the thank yeah. you talk soon bye-bye bye-bye